Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. The defeat of Islamic State and its strongholds in Iraq and Syria by US-backed militias in recent months has seen the terror group's self-proclaimed caliphate, which once covered large swathes of territory and enabled it to rule over millions of people, reduced to just a few desert outposts. But what has become of the many thousands of young men and women who left Europe to join the so-called caliphate? Might many of them now be returning home? And if so, how much of a threat do they pose? What should our governments be doing to ensure the effective defeat of Islamic State abroad doesn't bring an increase in terror attacks at home? These are some of the questions I'll be exploring shortly with the author of a report on Islamic State's foreign fighters and the threat they pose to their home countries. But first this week, we're going to Catalonia, where the election campaign for the new regional parliament has officially begun. Guy Hedgeco is covering the campaign for us and he joins me now from Barcelona. Guy, this is no ordinary election as we know. It was called by the Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy after he imposed direct rule on Catalonia, which in turn followed the Catalan Parliament's unilateral declaration of independence in October. Given that background, and, and we know that feelings have been running very high on both sides of this debate, is there a particularly tense atmosphere there, or does it feel like pretty much any other election? Well, I mean, the, the campaign is just getting in the way, and, and as it does so, there's not really a feeling of, of enormous tension, especially when you compare the situation now to back in October when there was you know, that really sort of febrile atmosphere in Barcelona and across Catalonia. Um, you know, it was really in the air. Um, at the moment, you know, you're seeing campaign posters all over the place. There are still a lot of uh, pro-independence Catalan flags hanging from balconies. People are, you know, obviously talking about politics a lot, but things have calmed down a bit since um, the height of those tensions back in the autumn. But having said that, people do seem to be aware of what is at stake with this in this campaign. Um, and you know, there's no hiding the fact that Catalan society is perhaps more divided than it has ever been throughout this crisis since it sort of really got going um, sort of half a decade ago, these tensions between Madrid and Barcelona. Um, the, the two sides on this are extremely divided, um, both in Catalan society and the political parties. And there's a lot at stake um, because we could either go uh, into a situation where we have um, another pro-independence government after these elections, which would obviously cause huge problems for the Spanish government, a huge headache there. Or we, we get a change of government and there are in, uh, unionist parties that take control of, uh, the, uh, of the Spanish, of the Catalan government. Um, that would be uh, quite a substantial change for Catalonia. Um, and both choices, you know, are quite dramatic, really. There are very few parties offering a, a sort of third way, if you like. Um, so there's a feeling that there's a lot at stake here. And I think we're going to see the tensions increasing closer to the election date on December the 21st. Now, in the last regional election, it's worth reminding ourselves in 2015, the pro-independence parties between them, they got just under half the vote, about 48%, but a small majority of the seats. So is it likely to be similarly tight this time, do you think? Yes, I think so. I mean, polls at the moment seem to be showing that the, the pro-independence parties are marginally ahead of the unionist parties, but it is very marginal. Um, and I think the, the latest poll showed the pro-independence parties were just short of a majority in terms of seats. They had 67 seats. They need 68 for a majority. Now, in Catalonia, there's a, an unusual sort of layout of the electoral landscape whereby more it's easier to, to pick up uh, parliamentary seats 
out in the interior, in the sort of smaller towns and villages of Catalonia in the interior than it is, say, in Barcelona and the big cities. And, and Barcelona is where the unionists have uh, more votes. That creates a problem for the unionist, unionist parties because even if they win more votes than the, uh, the pro-independence parties, they might end up getting less seats, fewer seats. Um, so there, there's a sort of anomaly there for them. It's very finely balanced at the moment. It, there's a feeling it's unlikely that the unionists will actually win outright. Um, the pro-independence parties will probably win, but getting that majority is going to be difficult. They would really love to get a majority of the popular vote. That would be um, the ultimate sort of victory for them. But that's seen as pretty difficult as well. And they fell short of that, as you say, in 2015. If they got that this time round, they feel that would give them a very clear mandate to once again push ahead towards independence. The problem is if they get a, a majority of seats but not the, problem of, not, not the uh, majority of votes, then once again they're in that, that situation where people are questioning their mandate. Now, I suppose one thing that might have helped them get that majority of votes would have been had they uh, managed to run on a, com a common platform or a joint platform. And I know some people on the pro-independence side would like to have seen that happen, but it's not the case, is it? The, the independence parties are running their own campaigns, aren't they? Yes, that's right. You have three pro-independence parties, the Junts the, uh, Pelsi, which is um, the, the party of Carlos Puigdemont, the deposed Catalan president. It's running under a, a different brand um, together for Catalonia uh, for this election, but it's essentially the same party with a few civic candidates there as well. You've got um, Esquerra Republicana de Catalonia, the, the Catalan uh, Republican left, and uh, a more marginal party, the CUP, who are um, a, an anti-capitalist party, who have relatively few votes, but they were very influential in the last legislature in terms of pushing through um, and pushing the other parties towards uh, trying to get that declaration of independence and staging a referendum. Um, and I think there's going to be a bit of a job, for, especially for Esquerra Republicana and for Junts Pelsi, party of Puigdemont, to sort of show that they have a different vision for Catalonia and a different vision for an independent Catalonia. They're all supporting the idea of independence. Um, they're all giving a vision that's slightly less strident than last time round. Um, they're being a bit more moderate in that sense. They're not laying down markers in terms of when they want to gain independence. Um, a bit, they're being slightly more consensual in that sense. But it might be difficult for them to actually uh, mark a clear path, mark differences between the parties. So that's certainly going to be a challenge for those two bigger pro-independence parties. And what about on the unionist uh, side, Guy? Just give us a picture there of the main parties and main personalities there. Well, the, the, the interesting situation for the unionists is that the, the, the biggest unionist party in Spain, this party which governs Spain, the, the Partido Popular, the popular party of Mariano Rajoy, actually does very poorly in Catalonia. Um, and it's, you know, it's going to be probably trailing in last or near, near to last in these elections, probably doing really quite poorly. The dominant unionist force uh, in Catalonia at the moment and for the last couple of years has been Ciudadanos, this relatively new party, um, which was founded only in Catalonia originally about a decade ago um, as a party that was opposing Catalan nationalism. And then it went national. Um, 2014, and it started sort of challenging the old parties across Spain and challenging Podemos as well um, on this sort of regenerational uh, platform. Um, and it's been very successful, and it's it's really done well in the polls the last few weeks because it's kind of outflanked the popular party in terms of 
um, calling for a clampdown on Catalan nationalism. It's been, in a way, more stridently unionist than Rajoy's own popular party. Um, and that seems to have paid off in the polls, not just in Spain, but in Catalonia as well. Then you've got um, the, the, the Catalan socialists who have tried to sort of strike a um, another path um, opposing independence and opposing the idea of a referendum on independence, but trying to be a bit more uh, moderate. The, the big question is if those three parties on the unionist side um, were a, in a position to try and form a government, would they be able to? Would they actually be able to agree on enough issues to try and form a government? Because the socialists, for example, and Ciudadanos would have very different visions of how the economy should be run, for example. Well, yes, that's right. I mean, Ciudadanos come from a, a more sort of centre-right um, place in terms of the economy. Um, and, you know, the, the socialists would be to the left of that and on, on some social issues as well. Um, but I think... There is a feeling that the, the the Catalan issue, if you like, the territorial issue, is going to dominate any kind of negotiations between uh, these parties. Um, and it's interesting, there was a, a TV debate um, just a few days ago between the leading uh, unionist candidate, Ines Arimadas, she's the candidate for Ciudadanos, um, and her counterpart for Esquerra Republicana de Catalunya, Marta Rovira. Um, and at one stage, they were asked by the presenter in this debate uh, what, what the uh, unemployment rate was in Catalonia. And neither of them could answer that you know, because they were so obsessed and so focused on the issue of the territorial crisis. And so they couldn't answer him correctly. So that gives you an idea of how this has dominated um, the political scene, obviously in Catalonia, but to a certain extent across Spain in recent months. And now, Guy, there have been two very significant developments in the last 24 hours, kind of on the judicial side of things, if you like, that um, I'd like to ask you for your view on what the impact might be. We had in the Supreme Court in Madrid yesterday, um, six of the eight Catalan government ministers, the outgoing government who had been uh, held in custody on, on uh, sedition and rebellion charges, they were released on bail. But two, two others were actually... Um, uh, remain in custody, two, two members of the cabinet, plus two other pro-independence um, um, campaigners. Um, that happened uh, on Monday. Then on Tuesday, just before we came on air, actually, um, the arrest warrant that had been issued in Spain for the deposed Catalan president, uh, Carlos Puigdemont, who is in exile in Belgium, the arrest warrant for him and four of his colleagues who were all in Belgium was was withdrawn. So I'm just wondering, um, it, would those developments kind of um, amount to a significant sort of de-escalation or is the fact, will the fact that four um, leading Catalan pro-independence campaigners are still in jail, will that actually be still a major focal point of this campaign? Well, I think, you know, first of all, it's important to point out that the, the decision of uh, Carlos Puigdemont and his um, the European arrest warrant being lifted against him, that seems to be very much a technical decision rather than a change of heart by the Spanish judicial authorities. Um, it's to do with how the, the, the Supreme Court in Spain believes the, the Belgian authorities might handle his case and it might weaken Spain's hand if he did come back to Spain in terms of trying him. So the Spanish arrest warrant against Puigdemont still stands. So in that case, he he would almost certainly be arrested and imprisoned if he did come back to Spain. Um, but clearly, the, the fact that you've got these uh, these politicians either imprisoned or in, in exile um, is a major factor in this campaign. It, it's pretty unprecedented in that sense. 
Um, now, you could see that as a big disadvantage for the pro-independence uh, camp, because clearly not having you know, some of your main candidates, Puigdemont, um, Oriol Junqueras, he's one of the two who's been kept in prison uh, following that decision earlier this week by the Supreme Court. Uh, he was deputy president of um, of Catalonia um, until recently, um, you know, and, and and a very high profile pro independence figure. Not having those kinds of figures on the ground obviously is a is a problem in terms of just sheer logistics of campaigning. Um, but on the other hand, I think having them in exile or in prison, it, it, it's a kind of uh, it's a symbol for the independence movement, and it could be seen to help them in the sense that um, you know the Catalan uh, the, the pro independence parties can say, well, we're being repressed by the Spanish state. This is proof of it, um, and they can point to Puigdemont in Brussels. Uh, um, and Junqueras in prison. Guy, the Spanish government has said it will respect the result of the election regardless. Now, it remains to be seen what happens if the um, pro-independence parties come back with a majority in the parliament again. Presumably what would trigger um, a response from the Spanish government would be if they were to declare independence again. Um, And you you alluded to there earlier. Is there um, any evidence at this stage? Um, so what might happen is should the same parties come back into government? Is there a kind of new thinking about different tactics or are they likely to go back down the same road of declaring independence? Well, I've spoken to a, to a couple of uh, politicians from Esquerra Republicana, the pro-dependence party today. And, and they kind of, you know, they admitted that they'd made mistakes, um, you know, in the last few months um, with that declaration of independence, saying that, um, they felt that perhaps they'd been a bit, a bit naive, believing that the Spanish government would engage in dialogue and so on. And, you know, and th- there have been other criticisms of their own, uh, of how they have handled um, the situation over the last few months, especially since October the 1st and that referendum. So there's a kind of feeling of self-criticism and that maybe next time around they would do things differently. But the, the main change of tack would seem to be that they just wouldn't lay down um, these sort of time frames um, as they did previously and say, right, in 18 months, we're going to stage a referendum or in in, um, in two years, we'll be, we will be independent. They're, they're not doing that at the moment. Um, they're being much more cautious in that sense. And I think that has a lot to do with the, the response that they've had from not just the Spanish state, but also from the European Union, uh, which has completely refused to get involved in all of this and intervene as they would have wished. So I think they've realized that out of necessity, they've got to be a lot more cautious. Now, if those parties did manage to get a majority of seats and a majority of the popular vote, that's unlikely, I think. But, you know, that would embolden them enormously. And that would really mark their recovery after all the trauma they've been through over the last few weeks. They might start talking again about a new roadmap to independence. But I don't think it would be such a bold roadmap as the one they laid down last time after the elections in 2015. Well, presumably they'd have a very strong case then for a recognised referendum, wouldn't they? I mean, and, and I think polls have shown that Catalans, wherever they stand in independence, they, a majority does favour holding a referendum. Yes, I think a, a majority of the popular vote would really change things in that sense. Um, it would create a, a lot more pressure on the central government to agree some kind of referendum. Although I think the Rajoy government in Madrid is always going to resist the possibility of a referendum, especially when you've got the parties like Ciudadanos, who are doing so well, who are so opposed to that idea. Um, and then the, the Madrid media, the right wing of the popular party in Madrid, all opposing Uh, that idea on principle because they say it goes against the constitution. So I think we probably would be looking at a change of government in Madrid, um, as well as those changes 
here in Catalonia before we start looking at the possibility of some kind of Scotland-style referendum on independence. OK. Well, Guy, the election date is December 21st and we look forward to talking to you again about this between now and then. Thanks for that. Thanks a lot, Chris. Beyond the Caliphate, Foreign Fighters and the Threat of Returnees is a report on Islamic State's foreign fighters published recently by the Sufan Centre and the Global Security Network, non-profit organisations that examine global security issues. Among their key findings are that at least 5,600 people who went from Western countries to the Middle East to either fight for Islamic State or otherwise support its activities have now returned home, and that states have not yet found a way to address the problem of returnees. And I'm very pleased to say that the author of that report, Richard Barrett, joins me now from London. Richard, you're very welcome to the Worldview podcast. Um, Richard, you make the point in your report that it's difficult to get an accurate picture of numbers here for a variety of reasons. Some states have more accurate figures than others. Some are more forthcoming than others with their information. But insofar as it can be assessed, what kind of numbers are we talking about here? How many Islamic State fighters are making their way back to Europe following the, essentially the defeat of the caliphate in Iraq and Syria? Well, as you say, these figures are pretty slippery. I think the highest American estimate of people who'd gone to join the Islamic State from other countries was about 40,000. Well, that in itself, of course, is a bit too round a figure to be accurate. But say uh, that, that the estimate is, is correct uh, in that region, then I would say probably about 20% may have gone home by now. But even if 20% have gone home and another maybe 15% perhaps were killed or 20% were killed, that leaves a huge amount still out there if we accept the the original figure of about 40,000. And there is no current understanding of where those people are. So that's why I rather question the figures on, on in all categories. And in general, how much information do European governments have about their citizens who go abroad to fight for Islamic State? Is there good intelligence sharing and in between states? Well, it's got better. It's certainly got a lot better. But if you think that people started to go in 2012, it was really only in about 2014, 2015, that states really began to share information among themselves. Maybe there was bilateral sharing, but there wasn't any sort of multilateral sharing. And the Turks in particular complain that um, states were accusing them of letting these people go through into Syria. But they said, well, you know, we've got hundreds of people, millions of people coming to our country every year. And if you don't give us some idea of who to look out for, then we can't keep track of where they go once they've entered Turkey. And uh, so their own databases started to grow. And uh, because that worked quite well, I think states began to share among themselves with Europol, with Interpol and other groups like that. And I think one of the more worrying findings that I mentioned there at the outset was that the states have not yet found an effective way to deal with pe- people coming back. You say in your report that they tend to try one of two approaches. One is to to put people in prison and the other is to try rehabilitation and reintegration into society. And um, have either of those approaches been found to work or wh- which works best? Well, it's all very particular to the individual, unfortunately. So for some, going to prison may work. For some, uh, going through a rehabilitation program may work. But for others, it won't work. And it's very difficult, of course, to tell at the beginning what's going to work for whom. Of course, if somebody's committed a crime, and in many countries, joining the Islamic State is in itself a crime, then if there's sufficient evidence and it goes to a court and they're convicted, surely they should go to prison. But of course, prison is only a temporary solution for those people because 
Um, they won't stay there forever. And when they come out, what sort of attitudes will they have? And while they're in prison, what influence will they have on other prisoners? So that's an issue for the prison service. And on the rehabilitation and reintegration programs, well, it depends a lot why people actually went to join the Islamic State, what they were looking for by doing that, as to how they may be successfully reintegrated in society. But even if you help them deal with those issues, then there'll be other people in the community who say, well, look, we didn't do anything wrong at all. We didn't even go and rob a corner shop. Um, and yet you're giving these people all these privileges and help and so on in, um, in finding a, a future life. And you make the point in the report that we won't really eradicate this problem unless you deal with the social conditions that lead to people going off to join jihadist movements in the first place, don't you? But that's a very long-term project, isn't it? It's a very long-term project. Yeah, but are we serious about it or not? I mean, we can say, okay, this is just another form of crime and we just have to put up with it and from time to time there'll be a terrorist attack. But the reaction of the people, the reaction of the media uh, forces a reaction by the politicians. So I think there has to be some sort of more comprehensive approach than just shrugging one's shoulders and saying, well, let's hope that we continue to catch most of them before they do anything stupid. But in, in, in being able to do that, I think we need much, much more research into what lies behind the reasons of, that people go to join these groups and then come back home after a time. And do you see any evidence that governments are kind of taking that seriously and are, are you know, t- taking those kind of measures and taking that long-term view that's, that, that's necessary? Well, they're certainly wringing their hands, you know, which is a start, I suppose. But finding solutions is very difficult. I mean, there's all sorts of problems in the, in our countries, particularly in, in uh, Western Europe, um, you know, social problems, economic problems, political problems, the sort of polarization that's going on now. You know, there's in-groups and out-groups, there's growth in right-wing extremism as, as well as the sort of Islamist identity, which is causing problems within communities. And all of that may have different causes, but fundamentally, of course, it's about social cohesion. It's about pulling together as a community, whether on the small local scale, even at the family level or the street level and so on, and then up into the national level and um, in the sort of pan-European level too. And it's really difficult for government, I think, to address some of the individual problems within the sort of five-year electoral period that they, that they generally plan for. And just coming back then to the sort of immediate issue of, of people returning from, from Iraq and Syria, they, they don't all pose the same threat, of course. Um, do you, do you, are you've, in your report, you kind of categorise them, you know, from people who are uh, disillusioned, come back disillusioned with what they kind of found when they went out there to those who come back more radicalised maybe than they, were, than they were when they left. What's the, is there a typical picture here? Um, and kind of where, where would the greatest threat lie? Who, who'd be highest on your radar? I think the ones who've come back most recently, because I think the ones who came back early probably were disillusioned. They probably didn't take part or even witness the worst excesses of the Islamic State. But people, for example, who went on fighting until the fall of Raqqa or something like that, they must surely be deeply committed and deeply radicalized and identify almost completely with Islamic State rather than with the home community that they're going to return to. So those, I'm sure, would be the most dangerous, not only for their attitude, but also for their skills as well. And do we know yet, are, are people in that category, are they more likely to come home or are they more likely to go? I mean, it's, it's worth pointing out that Islamic State does have a presence in, in lots of other countries in Libya and, and East Africa and many other places. Are many of them more likely to go on and look for uh, an opportunity as it were to fight for Islamic State elsewhere? 
I think you're right. I think that they will. If they have the opportunity, for example, to go to Libya or Sinai or even to, say, Philippines or somewhere, well, maybe they will take it. But it's not so easy to get there. And I think even if they were to try and get to Libya, they might have to go through Turkey. They might therefore find it easier to go home first and then move on to Libya later if they can. Um, so, yeah, I'm, that may be their ambition, but it may not be so easy to achieve. And your report, Richard, it's not all about fighters. Um, you have a section on, on women and children. Um, now, of course, there have been instances of women who, who will also um, uh, uh, take part in combat. But generally, that's not the case, I think, in Islamic State. So what kind of particular challenges um, are do women, returning women and children pose for Western governments? Well, you're absolutely right in saying that the Islamic State forbade women from taking part in combat. But that... Um, diktat sort of got weaker as time went on. And I think now we see that women are permitted to take part in combat under the sort of uh, ruling that they should be able to defend their their community. Well, their community can be interpreted in many different ways. And we've seen several women in, involved in terrorist plots in Europe who do support the Islamic State and didn't hold back just because they were women. So I think that women returning Obviously, again, a lot will depend on their attitudes, but uh, I'm not sure that we can regard them as no threat at all. And there have been instances, I think you mentioned in the report, of women being um, acting as recruiters and very effective um, uh, recruiters for Islamic State. And that's true, too. They can be effective recruiters, and also they can urge men to take action, um, persuading them that that's their duty and their obligation even. And then, of course, they're raising children, and and the young children will learn a lot from their mothers, clearly. And if their mothers encourage them to take part in terrorist activities, even if it's only in a facilitating role, then uh, you know that's a further problem that authorities will have to deal with. Obviously, Richard, this issue of returning fighters, is one, it's one of concern to everybody in the West. Um, it's an ongoing issue. Only today in the Times newspaper in London, there's a report about what they describe as a surge of foreign fighters coming coming back. And this was arising from this a deal that was done in Raqqa when when uh, this US-backed militias really defeated Islamic State in, in, in Raqqa. But a, a deal was done allowing hundreds of fighters to, to flee and they, got, they were escorted out of the city. And now you have this newspaper report today talking about a surge and and so on, and many of them coming home. How would you, in general terms, characterise the the level of threat here? Um, how well placed are governments to deal with it, and how basically how worried you know should we be? Well, there may be a bit of a surge of people coming back as the Islamic State sort of territorial caliphate sort of shrinks to nothing, because as you were saying earlier, there won't be so many other places for them to go. But so far, the flow has been far less than expected. Far fewer have come back, which again makes me question the overall numbers. But um, on the Raqqa issue in particular, yes, they did allow a lot of uh, Syrian members of Islamic State to leave Raqqa, and they said that no, no foreigners should go with them. And I think they only identified four foreigners who were trying to go with them, and they were taken out. Um, but there may have been very many other foreigners within that group who were allowed out of Raqqa. Uh, well, they have their fingerprints and they have their iris scans and they and all the identifying particulars they took when the convoy went through. But of course, their identity could be obscured, you know, under false names and so on. So 
those people generally, I think, went down to Deir down further south in Syria. But uh, some of them, yeah, sure, from there may have gone into Iraq, then from Iraq into Kurdish areas, into Turkey or Iran or wherever. And so we can expect a, a few perhaps more to come back. Richard Barrett, thanks very much for talking to us today. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.